I want to begin by asking you a question that you're probably not anticipating when you come to church. This is the type of question that you would expect your doctor to ask, or maybe if you go to see a therapist or a psychiatrist of some kind, you would expect maybe a counselor to ask you this question, but I'm none of those things, but I want to ask you this question tonight and just kind of give you something to think about. Here's the question. How happy are you with your life right now? Now, when I was thinking about this sermon last night, I started writing it out, and I wrote the question this way, are you as happy as you could possibly be right now? Now, I want you just to think about that. Are you as happy as you could possibly be right now? Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody or make anybody feel bad, but just so I'll know kind of where we all are tonight, how many of you would say, maybe I should Maybe I should ask the question a different way so we'll feel comfortable raising our hands. How many of you tonight would say, well, John, I'm happy with my life, but truth be known, I wouldn't mind being a little bit happier. Now, let's all, if, you, if you could agree with that sentiment, okay, that's most of us that have raised our hands saying, you know what, life is good, I'm happy, but I wouldn't mind being a little bit happier. Well, friend, I want to say this to you at the beginning tonight, God wants you to be happy in life. Do you believe that? Say amen. I'm telling you, he does. Now, I know there are a lot of people, there's some people who don't believe that. I've heard a lot of preachers say in my life, growing up in the church, listening to a lot of preaching, I've heard preachers say, God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Well, you know, the, half of that statement is true. God does want us to be holy. There's no question about that. He doesn't want us out there sinning and doing things we shouldn't do. But just because God wants us to be holy, that doesn't mean that He doesn't want us to be happy. In fact, when a preacher says, God doesn't want you to be happy, God wants you to be holy, what that really says is, if you're holy, you're going to be miserable. Well, just the opposite is true. If we're holy or pursuing holiness or trying to live right by God, we're going to be happier than we would if we were living an unholy life, an ungodly life. And so I want to set the record straight tonight. I'm going to back it up with plenty of Scripture. It's not just my opinion. God, the God that we serve, not only wants us to be holy, God wants us to be happy. Now, if you picked up one of the little sheets tonight coming in, you notice that I've put a lot of verses on this sheet about happiness, and I could have put quite a few more, but I, I want you just to see these. The first one, and I think it's on the video wall tonight as well, the first one is something that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, Jesus was saying the reason I came to this earth was not only to give people life, by, by life he meant new life, salvation, a new beginning. But he didn't just come to save us. He came also that we could live an abundant and overcoming life. Now, another verse is in the book of Psalms. And in Psalm number 4, notice what it says. You have put gladness in my heart. David wrote that. And David's sitting down one day, and he's just thinking about God, and he's thinking about his life, and he's thinking about what God's done for him. And, and he, he said this to God. He said, you know, God, as I consider it all, I would have to say this. You have put gladness in my heart. You have made me a happy person. Now, I wonder tonight how many of us could say that. 
that we could say, God, what you did for David, you've done for me. You've put glad, you've made me happy on the inside. Now look at this other verse. David wrote this too in Psalm 21. He said, you have made, and he's referring to himself in the third person here, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Notice those two, those two descriptions. Most blessed and exceedingly glad. Say that with me. Most blessed and exceedingly glad. Say it by yourselves. I went tonight after the service. If you went to a restaurant, you went to Walmart, you went somewhere, and somebody says, how are you doing tonight? I, I wonder how many of us could say, not that we would, we'd think we would sound weird if we did, but how many of us could say tonight, well, you know, I'll tell you how, I'm most blessed and I'm exceedingly glad. Well, whether we would say that or not, we, that should be in our hearts. We should be able to say that. Now, look at another verse in Psalm 34. David wrote this too. He says, they looked to him, that is, they looked to God and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. What's he saying? He's saying there's something about looking to God. There's something in life, instead of focusing on our circumstances, focusing on our problems, focusing on whatever, to focus on God. And he says, when we focus on God, our faces have a radiance about them. They have a countenance about them. They have a happiness about them. Now, when I say happiness, I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm not talking about the feeling you would have if somebody gave you $1,000 after this. Man, you gave me $1,000. Well, if somebody gives us $1,000, we're almost giddy. We're, we're just, it's, it's different. I'm talking about something much deeper than that. In the inside where we're happy, joyful, glad, content, we like the life, the life that God has given us. And so he said they looked to him and were radiant. And their faces were not ashamed. And then one other verse, and I had never paid much attention to this verse until last night. I got home, and I was actually reading in the book of Proverbs, and I ended up seeing a cross-reference that led me to this verse in Ecclesiastes 2. And I'm printing it tonight in the NIV, and notice what it says. To the person who pleases him, that is, who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and what's the next word? and happiness. And so the Scripture is saying, if your life is pleasing to God, now, nobody's perfect. We say that all the time, because I think sometimes when we say, if you're pleasing God, we think, well, we can never sin. We all sin. But if we're trying to go with God and to please God in our lives, and when we do sin, we confess it, and we repent of it, and we ask God to help us never do it again. If we're living that kind of life, He's not only going to give us wisdom and knowledge, but He's going to put happiness in our heart. And so I'm saying to you tonight, here you are, the faithful one. On Wednesday night, you've come to church, and I'm saying to you tonight that God wants to fill your life with happiness and joy and gladness. Now, that said, turn to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and I want us to start tonight by focusing on just one verse. And I was trying to think what would be the appropriate message to preach tonight because my dad on these Wednesday nights is doing a series and he's highlighting different people throughout the book of Genesis. And he's talking about the, the footprints that they're leaving behind, the example that we have to follow. He talked about Noah and talked about Abraham, talked about uh, Esau and Jacob, and now he's doing a series on Joseph that will go, I'm going to preach again next Wednesday night, and then he's going to pick that back up the first week in July. And so I thought, well, I don't want to jump in there and preach a sermon on Joseph. He's studying that. I'm going to let him do all of that. But I, I was thinking about this. Here's the, the book of Genesis in a nutshell. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, God created the whole world and made all the people. 
and, and then sin entered the world, and so he sent the flood, destroyed everybody except Noah and his family. And so when the flood was all over, you have Noah and his wife, their three kids and their wives, and they populated the earth. And from their offspring came Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we know with the story of Joseph that the people ended up going down to Egypt because there was a famine all over the world, and Joseph had been sent to Egypt by God to save everybody's life by storing food before the famine came. And so the book of Genesis begins uh, in the Garden of Eden, and it ends in Egypt with Joseph in a coffin. Now, that's just how far sin takes you, from a garden to a coffin. We come to the book of Exodus, and God is beginning the process after many, many years of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. We know that once the people went to Egypt for food, they ended up staying there, and a new Pharaoh rose up who had not known Joseph. He begins to mistreat all the people. He made slaves out of the Jews and had them to to, to be his slaves, his servants, and they were building bricks, and it was a horrible life they had. And, and Pharaoh is an Old Testament picture of the devil and how before we got saved, Satan, he abused us, he mistreated us, he, he had us in bondage, and he wouldn't let us go. Just like Moses kept saying to Pharaoh, hey, Mo, hey Pharaoh, God has a message, let my people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Well, that's what the devil was like before we got saved, man. He had us in bondage. Some were in bondage to drugs and alcohol. Some were in bondage to something else. In bondage. And then finally there came a day where we got saved and and we came out of Egypt. And that's what happens in the book of Exodus. By the time we come to about chapter number 12, God at the Passover is leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage after 430 years. That's Exodus. That's why it's called Exodus because they exited. They left Egypt. Leviticus, we know about the Levites. The Levites were the ones who served God in the temple or the tabernacle at that time, and they were offering up sacrifices to God. And so in in Leviticus, we read about all these different sacrifices, the, the sin offering and the grain, all these different offerings being offered up to God. That's what the whole book's about. And we know that that was an Old Testament picture of Jesus who would one day offer his life up on the cross for the payment of our sins. And so, in a nutshell, Leviticus points to Jesus. And if it weren't for Jesus, we would be in some Jewish temple tonight offering up goats and bulls and rams and and confessing our sins to the priest, and and, and he would sacrifice those up, and, and we'd be doing that over and over and over and over again. But Jesus fulfilled all that. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. And then the book of Numbers is largely about the children of Israel wandering out there in the wilderness for 40 years. And the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to be tonight Deuteronomy is where God began to expand the law. He gave more specific laws to his people. And so I thought, you know, if I could settle in in a verse tonight in Deuteronomy, it kind of goes with what my dad's preaching about. He's talking about how Joseph went to Egypt. His brothers sold him down there, but really it was God who allowed all that so he could save lives. And then that's the process I've just described. But in Deuteronomy, the children of Israel are still in the wilderness. They're still wandering. Now watch this. They have come out of Egyptian bondage. We would say it this way. They have been saved. In an Old Testament sense, they had been saved. The blood had been placed over the doorpost of their house. The Passover, the death angel had passed over, and they had been saved. They had come out of Egyptian bondage, and yet they were stuck in the wilderness. 
And for 40 years, they're going round and round and round and round in circles. And it's a horrible life that they're living out there, even though God is providing for them food and water, manna and quail and water from rocks. God's taking care of them. And, and, and yet, they knew in their heart that there had to be more to life than wandering around in the wilderness. And so we come to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, and we go to verse 23, and notice what Moses says as he is reflecting on what God has done in this process of bringing them out of Egypt. He says, then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Notice what it says. He brought us out that he might bring us in. He brought us out of Egypt that he might bring us into Canaan, into the promised land. And so the children of Israel, the whole time they were out there in this wilderness wandering, and it's hot, and the food's not as diverse as it has been back in Egypt, and they're complaining and against God and against Moses. Moses says, you don't understand. God brought us out of a bad place, but he didn't just bring us out to bring us out. He brought us out to bring us in. And so when I say tonight, at the beginning of this message, are you as happy as you would like to be, I can assure you tonight that there are many Christian people who are not happy with their lives. They're not happy. There are many Christians who are happy. And, and certainly none of us is always happy every moment of every day, although we should be and we can be. But the fact is there are some people who are truly saved. They are on their way to heaven, and yet, truth be known, they are not happy. Why? Here's why. They have come out of Egypt, the land of bondage. They have come out of their lostness, but they've not gone in to the promised land that God has for them. Now, many times we get our analogies mixed up, and we think the promised land is a reference to heaven. And we read in the Bible about the promise, and even we sing an old hymn, one of my favorite hymns, that I'm bound for the promised land. Well, there is a sense in which heaven is a promised land, but from a purely biblical perspective, heaven is not the promised land. Canaan in the Old Testament is not a picture of heaven. It is a picture of the abundant life right here and right now on this earth and in this world. That's what Canaan is. Think about this. In Canaan, in the promised land in Old Testament times, People were dying. Well, nobody's dying in heaven. In, in the promised land, there were, there were enemies that had to be overcome, giants that had to be fought. Well, there's not going to be any of that happen in, in, uh, in heaven. In, in the promised land, there were all kinds of problems and struggles. There's not going to be any problems and struggles in heaven. So the promised land is not a picture of heaven. It is a picture of the abundant life that Jesus Christ has for us right here and right now in this life. And so when Moses said to the people, God brought us out that he might bring us in, think about this. At that time, they had come out of Egypt, but they had not gone into Canaan. And as a result of that, they were unhappy, they were miserable, and something inside of them said, there's got to be more to God. There's got to be more to the deliverance. There's got to be more to salvation. God must have had something better in mind for us than this when he had Moses tell us to put the blood over the doorpost. Surely there's more to following God than being in a desert for 40 years. And they were right on that. There's a lot more to following God than being in the wilderness. There is a promised land. And for you and me today, that promised land could be described with many words like this, peace. Now, when I say peace, keep in mind in the Bible there are two types of peace. 
There's peace with God, which we get when we get saved. Romans 5, 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The reason, one of the reasons I know I'm saved tonight is in my heart I have peace with God. The Spirit of God in my spirit, God's Spirit bearing witness with my spirit tonight that I belong to Him. I know I'm saved, so I have peace with God. But we read in Philippians chapter 4 about another kind of peace, and that's the peace of God. That is a peace that says no matter what happens in this life, I'm okay. I have peace. Not only do I have peace with God, I know I'm saved, but I have the peace of God in my life. Let me tell you how, how important this is. I was talking to one of our members on the phone today. He and his wife, very active members of our church, joined here about three years ago. And he called, and so after I had done a wedding this afternoon, and after the wedding, I called him back, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? I noticed where you called. He said, John, I'm glad you called me back. He said, i got to tell you some unbelievable news. He said, a few days ago, my wife went in for a routine colonoscopy, not expecting anything, no symptoms, no pain, no problem, just, a, just time to do a colonoscopy. And when the doctor came into the room after the procedure, he said to us, well, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you have colon cancer. And he said, John, the thing that I don't understand about this, my wife is a picture of health. She eats perfectly. She exercises all the time. She's just he said, I, I, just, I, just, I just can't believe this. He said, she had a CAT scan yesterday. We're waiting on the results from that. Definitely she has to have surgery. Hopefully nothing more than that. But as we were talking about that, about the, the situation that she finds herself in right now, I could tell that in the midst of sadness, because this is a good husband, and he broke down and cried a couple of times telling me about this today, understandably. And the concern and the apprehension and the fear and the unknown, and all those things that any of us in that situation would experience, I could tell that in his voice and in his heart, in the midst of all of that, there was a peace that somehow, some way, God was going to take care of his wife. Now, I'm saying to you tonight, I hope none of you ever get something, a report like that. Some of you have had things like that to happen. But I want to say tonight, when you get in a situation like that, you need, you certainly need peace with God to know that if it doesn't work out, you're going to heaven, but you need the peace of God to sustain you during that time. So when I'm talking about Canaan, the promised land, it can be described by peace. God just gives you that calmness in your spirit. It can also be described by, by provision. God's going to meet your needs. God's going to take care of you. And God's going God's to never leave you with an, with an unmet need. If, if it's a legitimate need, God will always meet that need in your life. And yet, the children of Israel had come out, but they hadn't come in. Now, let me just stop just for a second here and ask you this question. Don't raise your hand, but just answer it in your heart. Can you say tonight with absolute certainty that God has brought you out of Egypt? You have come out of that place of lostness. I hope that you can. At the end tonight, I'll give you an opportunity to do that if you haven't. And it amazes me when we have these services on Sunday and Wednesday and we give the invitation at the end, how many people just keep getting saved? Did you know last Sunday, to the glory of God, there were about maybe more, but at least 20 people prayed last Sunday morning and asked Jesus to come in their heart between the two services? Unbelievable. And so, you know, tonight, there are probably some who, who need to say, you probably wish I'd just stop the sermon right now and end it. And probably everybody does, really, right? Just go, but I'm not going to stop it yet. Who are saying, John, I, think, I don't think I've come out. I think I'm still in Egypt. Well, tonight you can come out. But others of us here tonight would say, you know what, John, I've, I've come out. I know I'm saved. I've, I've been brought out. I'm under the blood. I'm trusting Christ. And yet, 
I'm not, I'm not where you're describing as far as being in that Canaan, that promised land of peace and, and provision and knowing that you're going to take care of me. And so the question tonight is simply this, how can we move into our Canaan? And you have this on your outline. I don't want to belabor this, but I do want to mention it tonight. I'll give you some things to write down. How can you move through the wilderness and into that promise? And remember, the wilderness that they, that they spent 40 years wandering around in, they should have spent about 11 days. If you study how long that walk should have taken, somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 days. It wasn't that far. 40 years. And yet, we see that God was patient with them. We see that God didn't give up on them. After 20 or 30 years, God's continuing to, to work with His people. But I want to tell you how to move into Canaan tonight and how to... How to get to a place in your life, not where you don't have any problems, not where everything goes your way, but I want to tell you tonight how to get to a place in your life where you can have happiness and joy and gladness and peace, contentment. You can say, you know what? God's put gladness in my heart. I'm most blessed and exceedingly glad. God, God has ch- totally changed my outlook on life. He has changed my attitude on life. I've gone from being a negative person to being a positive person. Step number one, write this down. Claim the promises of God. That is step number one to moving into Canaan. Can't claim the promises of God. Now, you're in Deuteronomy. Turn to the next book, which is the book of Joshua. Because at the very end of uh, Deuteronomy, Moses dies, 120 years old, Strong as an ox, 20-20 vision. His eyesight was not diminished and his strength was not abated. He was still strong, but he died. And they were still in the wilderness. And so now it's time for Moses' assistant, Joshua, to lead him into the happy land, to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And notice what it says, verse number 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying... Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, God is very practical, and nothing could be more obvious than that. And so he says to Joshua, Moses is dead now. So here's what I want you to do. Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. And so God says to Joshua, Joshua, Moses is dead. It's me and you now. He's been the man. He's been the leader. He's gone. You're the earthly leader, but I'm still God. I'm going to take care of you. And he says, here's what I want you to know, Joshua. Every place as you move into this promised land, every place that you place your foot, I have already given you the land. Now, notice the verb tense. Now, I'm in the New King James tonight, and one of the reasons I like the New King James is because of how it does verb tenses. Now, the ESV does it same way. New Living Translation does it the same way. NIV, which I absolutely love, puts it in a different translation here to make it easy reading, but I think perhaps misses what God is saying. Look in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. NIV says, I will give you. Well, there's a practical sense in that is I, it would become theirs when they put their feet on it. But what God was saying was, and the reason it's literally here, I've already given you the land. Here's what God's saying. God is saying, Joshua, I have already given you all this land. 
acres and acres, miles and miles of land. I've given you land, milk and honey, delicious food, beautiful scenes, water, rivers, streams, everything you can imagine. I've already given it to you. It's your, from my perspective, the land is yours. But here's the deal. From a practical perspective, it won't become yours until you place your feet of faith on that land. And as soon as your foot touches that land, it's yours. Now, from my perspective, it's already yours, but it'll be yours, practically speaking, when you put your feet on it. Now, for you and me as Christians today, I'm saying if we want to move into our Canaan, peace, provision, abundance, overflow, joy, happiness, and all the rest— What we have to do is to place our feet of faith on the promises of God. And everywhere we place our our feet of faith, every promise of God that we claim, that promise becomes real to us. So many ways, and I'm not going to endlessly illustrate this, which I thought about doing when I was preparing this. I thought, well, I'll just make a string of promises and show. But no, I'll just give you maybe for sure one, maybe two. How did you ever get saved? Well, I'll tell you how you got saved. You got saved because somebody shared with you a promise from God's Word that if you would call on His name, He would save you. That the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. That if we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be saved. They shared with you a promise. Let's just take Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. All right, now somebody told you that one day, and what did you do? You recognized your sinfulness. You felt bad about everything you had done wrong. You knew that Jesus died on that cross, shed his blood to forgive your sins. Somebody said to you, look, here's the promise. If you'll call on the Lord, you'll be saved. And so you called on the Lord, and you got saved. What did you do? You claimed that promise. You said, all who call upon the name of the Lord, I am I'm part of all. I'm under the category of all. Whoever, I'm a Whoever. And you called, and you got saved. So the only way you ever got saved was you put your feet of faith on the promises of God. You found a salvation promise in the Bible. Maybe it was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, whoever that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And what did you do? You believed, you trusted, and you got saved. And you don't worry about that anymore. Why don't you worry about it? Because you've claimed it by faith. You put your feet of faith on that promise. Now, remember what it says. Let me give you a verse if you're a note taker. Colossians chapter 2 and in verse number 6, it says, As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. So that's how you live the Christian life. How did you receive Christ? By faith. You claim the promise by faith. How do you live from here on? By faith. You find promises all through the Scripture. I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. I claim that. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I claim that. I'm not alone. God's going to meet every need I have. I claim that. I believe that. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I believe that. I claim that. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. I believe that. I claim that. All things work together for good. And the more promises we claim, the deeper we go into the promised land. And the deeper we go into the promised land, the greater our joy, the more real our peace, the more meaningful our our experience and relationship with God. And so how do we move into the promised land? We find these promises. This is why it is so important every day that you take your Bible, whether you read a verse, a chapter, or more than a chapter, read something in the Bible. And when you're reading in the Bible, certainly we're looking to see what it says. We're looking to see, you know, what is, what is God telling me to do? 
But one of the things we're looking for here, what, what, what promise has God made to me? What promises God made to me? And as I read this and as I think about the promises God has, I'll just show you. Go to, go to Psalm 13. I'll just, off the top of my head, I read this psalm this morning. It's a familiar psalm to many of us, familiar to me. And as I read this, promise, this psalm this morning, it's only got six verses. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to read a lot. Remember this. The main thing about reading the Bible is not how much you read or how long you read it. The main thing about reading the Bible is what you do when you get finished reading it. I mean, there are 24 hours in a day, and so at the absolute most, you're going to read your Bible one hour a day. And I don't know many people reading their Bible one hour a day. So more likely 30 minutes a day, more likely 15 minutes a day, and that's fine if you read it 10 minutes a day. What I'm saying is you're going to have infinitely more time during the course of a day when you're not reading your Bible than you are actually reading your Bible. And so the key is not to see how long or how much. The key when you're reading it is to find something that you can meditate on through the rest of the day because the rest of the day is going to have a lot more time involved. So here's what I read. I will just read it tonight. Uh, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He's questioning God. How long is this going to go on, God? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Question, 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 question. He's full of questions. Verse 3, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So he's praying and asking for God's help. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, one reason that psalm is so familiar to me, one of my dad's, one of his favorite sermons is out of Psalm 13. And he, his three points for that psalm are perplexity, prayer, praise. So I always remember, at the beginning of this psalm, David is perplexed. Question, question, question. Then he prayed. And at the end, he says in verse 5, I've trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I was seeing, Lord, as he dealt bountifully with me. I read that this morning. I said, God, and I was praying about something in my life. And I wouldn't say I was worried about it, but I was concerned. And so I said, God, this is something that's on my heart, something that's on my mind. And, and I, I had spent about 15 or 20 minutes this morning trying to figure this situation out, and I couldn't figure it out. And I read that psalm, and I said, now, God, I'm going to have to practice what I preach. And so I am now praying about what I've been concerned about. And I put it in your hands, and all I know to do is pray about it, to trust you with it, and to rejoice that you're going to take care of this situation. It was not a serious situation. It was just something that had me in, in my mind. I was trying to figure something out. And I prayed about it, and I, and I thought, you know, the only way David went from question, question, question to a place where he said, hey, God, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The only thing separating those two extremes was prayer, faith, well, really just prayer and faith. Prayer and faith led to the rejoicing, and it led to the singing. So that's what I'm saying. I read that this morning, and I finished it, and I went on to something else. But, I, but what I'm saying is that is a tremendous thing to kind of turn through your mind as you go through the day. God, today, for these things that concern me, for these things that worry me, for these things that make me anxious, God, instead of worrying about it or, or, or talking to 10 friends about it, God, I'm going to just pray about it. And I'm going to put it in your hands and ask you to intervene the situation. And I'm going to trust you with it. Now watch this. You still listen? Say amen. When we pray about something and when we trust God with something, immediately the burden is lifted. That's why the Christian life 
is much easier than most of us have ever learned, myself included. I think many of us think that the Christian life is complicated and so hard, and we have to understand all of Ezekiel's visions in that Old Testament book. And no, remember what Jesus said. He said, take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul. Next verse. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read a verse last night in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15. It said, the way of the transgressor is hard. It doesn't say the way of the Christian is hard. It said the way of the transgressor is hard. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, that doesn't mean that life is always easy. That doesn't mean that life is not sometimes hard. No, sometimes it is difficult out there in life. But what Jesus is saying is, even for that family going through that colon cancer diagnosis, even when we walk through the deep valleys of life, in our spirit, in the depths of our soul, there can be an ease, there can be a lightness, there can be a gladness, there can be a happiness. Why? Because we're yoked up to Jesus, and He is carrying the burden for us. He's carrying that burden. We're yoked with him. He feels the weight of it. We don't feel the weight if we'll pray about it and trust God with it. So that's what I'm saying. We have to claim the promises of God, and there are lots of them that we need to claim. Number two, and I wish I had time to really, really develop this, but the service has to be over with by 9 o'clock tonight, and I want to honor that time. Number two thing I would say tonight is this. Enjoy the presence of God. And there's nothing that I would enjoy tonight more than really developing that truth. But the presence of God in your life. You know, there was a monk lived a long time ago. I think he was in the 1700s. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he was living in the monastery. And his job was to scrub the floors and wash the dishes and cook the meals. And, and he came to a place in his life. And then, of course, they would have a break during the day. And they would go have their worship service. It was a... It was a Catholic monastery, and he would go and have prayer and communion and, and sing the songs to God. And he said that when he got to the, to the Mass, what the Catholics call the Mass, the word Mass just means service. They got to their service, and they were, the priest was talking about God, that all of a sudden he, his mind was on God, and he was worshiping God. But then he would go back to the kitchen, and he was scrubbing the floors and cleaning the dishes, and he got back doing that. And he said it was drudgery, and he forgot all about God, and God was the farthest thing from his mind. And so he prayed one day, and he said, God, here's my prayer. I pray that your presence would be just as real to me when I'm scrubbing the floor and washing the dishes as it is when I'm in Mass. And he, he started working on that. He started practicing that every day. And one of the greatest books in the history of the church it was written by Brother Lawrence, and it's called Practicing the Presence of God. And that's something we do have to do. We have, when, I, when he's talking about practicing, we have to remind ourselves. Let me tell you something, friend. Now, we've come to church tonight, and nobody loves church more than I do. But we've all been up a long time today, and we're going to be up a little bit longer when we get home tonight, right? Because the Bucks and the Hawks, it's game one, Eastern Conference Finals. We have to watch that game, see who's win that game. So we've got a long way to go in this, before this day's over with. And when we look back on this day... Only one hour of it will have been spent in church, right? I mean, the rest of it will have been at home, at work, at a restaurant, with family, friends. So if we have not discovered what Brother Lawrence discovered, we're only going to worship God at church. 
But if we can learn how to practice the presence of God, no matter where we are. I can remember when I was at New Orleans Seminary working on a degree, and I had a professor there named Dr. Daniel Holcomb. He was a church history expert, and he was teaching one of our seminars. And we were in class one, one night, and he was talking about, about worship. And by this time, he was, he was on up in age himself. And so that's one thing I love about older ministers, older pastors, is they preach not only from the Bible. We're supposed to do that no matter what our age is. But an older minister can preach from his experience. As Adrian Rogers said one time, the difference between an old man and a young man is that an old man's been young, and a young man's never been old. So when an old man speaks, he has experience. Dr. Holcomb was speaking from the Bible and from experience. And he was talking about worship. And he said to the class, he said, Class, when I was a young, young man, a young preacher, my wife and I had not been married very long, and we had, I think, three or four kids. And he said, one night, late at night, I was in the nursery room with one of our kids, and I was changing that baby's diaper. And, of course, I love that baby, and, and uh, I was thankful for my wife, thankful for my family. But I just remember thinking, God, I thought that when you called me to preach, that you were going to do something great through me and lead me to some big church, and I would have notoriety, and people would know. Her. I, God, I thought you were going to do something great with me. And he said, God, as grateful as I am for my wife and grateful as I am for my kids, God, I, you know I love to read my Bible, and I love to pray, and God, if I can't be known and be great and have a big church, you know nothing, God, makes me happier than worshiping you. And he said in that moment, God spoke to him and said, let me tell you something. You're doing the greatest thing right now you could possibly be doing. Changing that baby's diaper is more important than having a big church. And not only that, worshiping God. You're talking about worshiping God? He said, this is an act of worship for you. And so what was he saying? Same thing with his brother Lawrence. Practice my presence. You don't have to be reading a Bible, a chapter out of the Bible. You don't have to be praying to worship God. And I hope we get that because in a few minutes we're out of here doing what we do. And I hope as we go through the rest of this night that we will practice the presence of God. And then one more thing, embrace your place in this great big world. Embrace your place. It is a big world out there and, and uh, sometimes we feel like that we're just like a grain of sand. We're so tiny and small, nobody even knows who we are. You know, as I think about embracing your place, the word that came to my mind when I was preparing this sermon on this point was the word contentment. Just be content. Listen to this. Be content with the life that God has given you. So you, you don't, So maybe you're at a point in your life, kind of like my professor was, and he thought by then he would be pastoring some big church, and, and, and it didn't work out that way. But he learned, you know what? Happiness doesn't come from pastoring a big church. That may just be more headaches, right? I mean, it could be just more headaches. It certainly would be more headaches if it wasn't God's will. If it's God's will, he'll, bear, he'll carry that burden for you. But here's the deal. Wherever you are in life, embrace your place and believe that God is absolutely in control and that God has you where he has you. Claim his promises. Enjoy his presence. And I pray for you and me because tonight I'm in a I mean, I'm very, happy. I'm very at peace, I'm very happy, I'm very jovial tonight. In my heart, I, feel, I just feel that way. But I don't, I'm not always that way. I have my down times too. But I pray that God would bring all of us to a place in our life where we could say with David, God, you've put gladness in my heart. Has nothing to do with my circumstances, really. Think about this. 
Let me ask you this question. Do you think if you had $10 million, the biggest house in town, a house in Galveston, a house in Austin, and a house in wherever else you like, and five of your favorite cars, let me, here's my question. Do you think those things have the potential to make you happy, yes or no? We know they don't. We know they don't. Use your brain. If the presence of those things can't make you happy, does the absence of those things have the power to make you unhappy? No. Because happiness doesn't come, Bible happiness, I'm talking about joy and so on, doesn't come from that. It comes from God himself. This is why Paul, late in life, in a Roman prison, decides to write a letter of encouragement to the Christians back in Philippi. Seemed like they should have been writing him a letter of encouragement. He wrote them a letter of encouragement. From prison? You're encouraging us? You're in prison? He said, it's okay. I'm in prison, but I'm not alone. God is with me, and I've learned something. He said, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. Rich or poor, single or married, kids, no kids, good job, bad job, no job, popular, unpopular, loved, unknown. What are you going to do about it? Complain about it, bemoan it, feel sorry for yourself, or say, you know what? God's in control. He's living in my heart. He's given me a Bible full of promises. And if I'll claim them by faith, I can experience joy and peace and gladness and happiness beyond anything I've ever known in all my life. Amen.